The Fourth Wall, Episode 9, Dan Tepfer. You're listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you beyond the screen or the page and brings you into our conversations with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Michael R. I'm the podcast editor here at Den of Geek. And today we're going to talk to Dan Tepfer, a little bit off the normal beaten path for Den of Geek. Dan Tepfer is a musician who has gotten a little bit geeky with it when he takes his algorithms that he uses with a player piano technology so that the computer plays along with him based on what he's programmed into it. So it's a very innovative style of performance that we're going to talk all about, kind of merging math with music in a way. So let's go ahead and take a listen to our interview we had with Dan Tepfer in conjunction with the release of his album, Natural Machines, which comes out on May 17th. Well, we cover a lot of geeky topics here on Den of Geek, but when we delve into music, it's usually with some classic rock documentary or something like that. But I don't know how much more nerdy you can get than combining mathematical algorithms with jazz piano. And here to talk about how he does that is Dan Tepfer. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Now, let's start off by explaining what the Yamaha Disclavier does and how you've adapted it using computers to a unique style of performance. So the Yamaha Disclavier is a fully acoustic piano. It's uh, the kind of piano you see in concert halls. It uh, works the same as pianos have been working since the mid-19th century. Uh, but in, in addition to that, it has a player piano mechanism. So, you know, I think a lot of people are familiar with player pianos uh, from like 100 years ago that have these paper rolls that uh, have holes punched in them. And when the roll passes through the piano, the piano mechanically plays what's written on the roll. Starting in the, in the mid-80s, uh, Yamaha developed a modern version of this player piano. And it, it's, uh, it's kind of the same concept, except that it's piloted by a computer. So, and it can have dynamics and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Th- those old player pianos, you know, at best would have like a note could be either, quote, loud or, quote, soft. <laughs> um, but with, the, with this new generation of player pianos, you can have uh, 128 or even uh, thousands of gradations of dynamics on, on each note. And so you've taken a computer to sort of automate that in real time for live performances, but also just for improvisational pieces that you record for your albums. Is that correct? Yeah. So this project, Natural Machines, I call it Natural Machines because it's all about exploring the intersection of the algorithmic and the spiritual. Uh, And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you look at the music of somebody like Bach, loves to paint himself into a corner, but it's never such a tight corner that he doesn't leave degrees of freedom for himself. So with natural machines, I'm kind of starting from this idea that music gains from being supported by constraints. But the difference is that I'm having the computer take care of the constraints for me. So I'm improvising at the piano. This is a free improvisation project. Um, Improvisation is very important to me as a jazz pianist. And the computer in real time responds to what I'm playing at the piano uh, according to any number of different roles that I've, that I've programmed into the computer. Now you mentioned Bach and you're also known for doing variations on the Goldberg variations. 
So I'm thinking that was probably part of your inspiration. But I also noticed you got your master's degree in jazz piano after getting an astrophysics degree at the University of Edinburgh. So do you think you're uniquely suited in that way to merging math with music? Or was it something else that inspired this whole process? I mean, I've been really fascinated with science and music since I was a little kid. Um, and it kind of runs in the family. My, my dad is a biologist. His father was a biologist. And my mom is an opera singer. Uh, she sang at the Paris Opera Chorus for 25 years. And, and her father was a jazz pianist. And so I don't know if it's the fact that I studied, <laughs> studied physics and music, um, but it's, it's, it's uh, definitely in my blood. Uh, to be passionate about those two things. And, you know, also it's not that unusual for those things to come together. Uh, a lot of great musicians have those two facets to them. You know, Herbie Hancock has a degree in electrical engineering. Oh. <laughs> and, um, you know, a couple great jazz musicians on the, on the New York scene who are, who are a generation ahead of me, um, Jean-Michel Pilk and Francois Moutin, both have advanced math degrees uh, from one of the elite schools in, in France. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of examples of that. Well, now, did your variations on Bach-Goldberg variations start the road of playing around with what you could do improvisationally with established forms of music? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I would say that I've been thinking that way for a long time. You know, I've always been, when I was studying harmony and counterpoint in my undergrad, I was just fascinated by the fact that you could, that this thing that I kind of had assumed my whole life was coming mainly from emotions and you know that if something sounded good you just write it down and and that's what that's what composition was that that studying harmony and counterpoint i realized that something i'd thought about that way could actually be explained partially by a series of rules uh, i was really fascinated by that because when you set down rules and you say you know okay we know for a fact that this works then what it does is it actually increases your freedom because using those rules you can arrive at things that you never would have arrived at uh, just intuitively, uh, but that surprisingly actually do work because these rules are are solid and and what follows the rules does work. So that was something I was really fascinated by at that point. But in this project, Goldberg Variations Variations, where I play the 30 Goldberg Variations by Bach and then follow each one with an improvised variation, I really became familiar with that idea in a, in a much deeper way. Because in the Goldbergs, Bach sets up all kinds of different structural constraints for himself. And, and to me, it seems obvious that he's using them in order to augment his creativity, in order to discover new things about his creativity that he wouldn't have arrived at otherwise. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's He was kind of an earlier version of the kind of thing you're trying to do with jazz. Now, what's the difference between the Natural Machines episodes that we can find at dantepfer.com and the album that comes out on May 17th. So it's actually the same music. Uh, the big difference is that the YouTube versions have visuals, of course. Mm -hmm. So this is something we haven't even talked about. But in addition to this musical response that the computer gives, uh, I've, I've written other programs that create a kind of a live score of the music as it's happening. So the YouTube versions have that, but also the, the sound for the YouTube version has been mastered to basically sound good, like on a cell phone. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot louder. It's a lot more compressed, less dynamic range. 
But when I was making this record, it was really important for me that the music stand on its own. It's really essential for me that this project not be in, in any way a technological gimmick. I want us to be able to close our eyes and for the music to to really speak just as music. So it was important for me to put it out as a record. And the record, as it's released, also has better sound quality. And it's like an audiophile experience. And I think for me, it's actually really interesting to contrast the two experiences because if I listen to the CD and I close my eyes, I get my own world of visuals that, that comes up. And uh, it might actually be quite different from what I've made uh, in the videos. Yeah, you have to come up with your own <laughs> picture yeah. in your mind. Now, let's take a quick listen to a bit of one of the algorithms that most people will be able to conceptualize because some of them get quite complicated, of course. But just by listening, since this is an audio form and you don't have the visualizations, let's listen to Canon at the Octave. Can you describe what we're hearing in this one, just as an example? Yeah. Uh, so in this one, everything I play is repeated a little bit later, uh, either an octave down or an octave up. For those of you who aren't particularly into music, uh, an octave is kind of the simplest musical interval. What it is, is it's two sounds that in our minds sound like the same note. They have the same function musically, but one has twice the frequency of the other. Yeah, higher in pitch. And so that's one I think that when you're listening to it, you can definitely get the idea of what the computer is doing there. Now, we said that many of these tracks are available on YouTube accompanied by these amazing visualizations of the algorithmic concept being illustrated by your playing next to the computer's interpretation. So how important do you feel this visual aspect is, if not to your album, of course, to your public performances, which we should also mention? I think it's become quite important. You know, what I, what I really love about this project is it, it really feels to me like a bit of a step into the dark. It's definitely, I, I, I don't know of anyone else really doing exactly what I'm doing with, with the real time aspect of all of this and, and creating a real time score from the actual notes. So when I was developing it at first, it was purely a musical project. And then I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I have all this data in the computer. I, I know exactly what note was played. I know how loud it was played. I know when it was played. And I also know what the computer is generating in response. And not only that, but I know structurally, what the computer is doing. For example, if there's several layers of response from the computer, I can separate out those layers. So it's, it's, it's very different from, for example, if you just get the sound wave from somebody playing and you're trying to generate visuals from that. I really have the abstract fundamental data uh, of the music. And so I was sitting there thinking um, it'd be almost criminal not to 
not to create visuals from this. And so that started just about two years ago, creating the visuals. And my goal with them was to create something that's so genuinely directly tied to the music that it would never distract from the music. Because I think that's a big danger when you show video along with music. The, the music can just kind of start to sound like movie music. It can, it can sound like an accompaniment to the video. I've seen that happen a lot of times, even with really good music. Uh, I think that's a big pitfall. But I believe that if the visuals are, are exactly representing the music, that problem doesn't really present itself. So that was my goal. And I think it's really worked out. Like I, I got when I do um, live performances, I, I get a lot of comments afterwards from people saying that the, the visuals actually help them understand the music better and help them get into it more. Well, that's for sure. And and in fact, there's a track that I really like that doesn't even use the disclavier, and that's Triad Sculpture. It shows these cube-shaped representations of the sine waves of whatever chords you're playing with your left hand. And I saw that you even have physical 3D printouts of some of these chords in your possession. Do you find that audiences respond to the simple beauty of a sculpture of a major third versus a complex diminished chord or something like that that shows up as a sculpture with lots of twists and turns in it? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, first of all, I would say it, ha- it would have to be a, a major triad, major or a triad. major, <laughs> major uh, or a minor triad, uh, as opposed to just a major third. Because what I'm doing is I'm I'm mapping the harmonic ratios of each of the notes of the of, of these chords onto each of the dimensions of space. So if you only have a major third, which would just be two notes, then you'd get a two-dimensional image. Oh, okay. Uh, which, which actually, if you watch the video, there are moments when it is two-dimensional because I'm just playing two notes. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, I think it's all about contrast. Uh, what I what I really love when I'm playing this uh, this improvisation, they're always different. So they're improvisations, but the the kind of concept underlying each piece, for lack of a better word, uh, remains the same. Uh, when I, so when I'm playing this one, triad sculpture, um, what I love is, you know, I, I play like a, a major triad and I have told the computer that when I play major triad, I want it tuned in just intonation. And this is the, the tuning system that Pythagoras discovered where uh, frequencies are related to each other in whole number ratios. Mm-hmm. And so that creates a very simple shape. And I think we can really hear that when you hear a just intonation major triad you hear how there's just no interference between the tones there's no wobble in the sound uh, what we call beating there's no beating uh, it's just pure consonance you know and so when you see the image it really makes sense intuitively with that uh, but on the other hand some of the other intervals like for example if i play two stacked fifths like c g and d those i've decided to tune in equal temperament uh, that's the tuning system that's used by most musicians nowadays, except for musicians who who play instruments with variable tuning, like a violin or a voice. All pianos are tuned to equal temperament. And equal temperament tuning is kind of a mess. I mean, it has very definite advantages because it allows us to play in every key, but the ratios, the harmonic ratios between tones aren't whole numbers ever. 
And as a result, <laughs> the images are, are really dense and complex. And to me, the, the beauty of it isn't so much that one is, is better than the other. It's the it's moving from one to the other, going from that complexity to the simplicity and back again. One thing I start to do later in this process piece is I'll start from a just intonation harmony and then I'll I have a foot pedal, I press it and the the harmony will start detuning. And then they'll just start moving away from each other. And that creates this really interesting sound because we start to hear beating between the notes and, and eventually it becomes a whole different harmony. And we can see that happening visually in these three-dimensional images. So I just love the correlation between the two. And I will say that uh, these, these uh, 3D prints I've been making of the major and minor triads uh, are pretty cool. I, lo- I love the yeah. idea that you can hold a, <laughs> hold a major triad and, and a minor triad in your hand. Yeah, we need to get that on the merch store. Yeah, <laughs> ASAP. working on that. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, the Discovir, in a sense, echoes in different ways what you're playing. And although it happens in real time, unlike a conventional player piano, the computer is slightly behind you. So do you have to construct your rhythms and harmonics to take this lag into account? Yeah. Um, in fact, I would say that the, the lag is one of the most interesting aspects of the project. Um, but actually, the lag I'm using on the album, let's call it a delay, is a lot longer than the minimum lag that I could have. I mean, the processing by the computer is like instantaneous. There's really no delay there at all. Where there is a delay is that the Disclavier is a mechanical machine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So as a result, there's no way that it can act in real time. It has to, to physically move a lever in order to strike a key, but it can still do it quite quickly. I mean, we're on the order of like 0.1 seconds at its fastest. Actually, if you if you hit a note really loud, it could be as little as 0.6 seconds, uh, 0.06 seconds. So that can happen pretty quickly. And, and in almost all the algorithms, you'll see that uh, it's much longer than that. And what I love about that, once you introduce lag into music, you create rhythm. That's what rhythm is. You know, rhythm is resonance in time between events and that demands delay so i play around with that with that delay a lot for example in the first uh in the in in the second canon at the octave which is called metric mod canon at the octave slash metric mod metric mod means metric modulation and uh what i'm doing is when i press a pedal i can multiply the amount of time between what i play and the response by three halves or by two thirds. So as you can imagine, that requires me to be playing a certain way rhythmically before so that the three halves will be accommodated still in the rhythm without it just being kind of a random change. That must just hurt your brain sometimes when you're trying to play. I see you counting sometimes in the videos. Is that because you're trying to keep it straight? 
I mean, I wouldn't say I'm counting. I would say I'm feeling. Okay. <laughs> you know, I've been playing jazz piano for a really long time, and, and rhythm is, is definitely one of the very hardest things to contend with if you're trying to do it well. I would say that with rhythm, the more you feel it in your body, the more you feel it in your in your bones, and the more there will be this kind of magical feeling in the music that the rhythm is more than just where the notes fall in time. There's something beyond just the placement in time. Some of my favorite artists, especially in jazz, are able to swing like crazy just to communicate this incredible sense of, of groove and rhythm uh, without necessarily even placing the notes where you'd expect them to be in the beat. And I really love that mystery. So, so that's something with this project that I have to connect to a lot that internal sense of time because ultimately the everything the computer does is a response to what I do. So if I play deeply rhythmically, then the computer is going to respond also, uh, with a lot of rhythm. Yeah. That actually makes me think of a very mechanical question that I had. What happens when you play the same note that the disc clavier is already playing? Does your finger kind of thunk against the already depressed key? And does that throw you off? <laughs> Yeah, that's something I definitely have to contend with uh, in this project. So for your listeners who haven't seen the videos, when the computer is responding musically to what I'm playing, it's actually playing on the very same piano that I'm playing and literally moving the keys on its own around what I'm playing. So as, as Michael was just pointing out, once a key is being played by the computer, it's it's already down on the piano. It's already depressed and there's no way that I can play it. If I try to play it, my it would just be like, like falling into a little pit. My finger would just uh, would just go go down with a thud to the bottom of the key. So actually, what I've done is um, I've designed the algorithms so that that's less likely to happen. They don't act right around where I'm playing. They'll act above or below and give me some space. It does mean that I have to be careful not to not to move around too quickly, uh, or at least not in the direction that the computer is responding. I, I can move quickly away from that direction. Uh, but yeah, that's something to contend with. And, and I kind of love that. I mean, I love constraints. I think the more constraints there are, uh, the more of a game it is for me, the more, um, in, in some ways, the, the less ego there is for me, because uh, I just have to sit there innocently trying to make things work, trying to find a, a way to, to make things sound good despite the constraints and um and i really love that and and so that that thing about not getting in in the way of the computer and the computer not getting in my way is is definitely a part of that now you mainly use the disc to perform your algorithms using a jazz style which certainly makes sense for some of the more complex mathematical expressions which can get fairly dissonant but can you use it or have you used it to create more of a classical fugue yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would say that uh, that every track on the record is really very jazzy. Uh, I mean, I don't That's know. True. Different, That's true. Different people will have different different perspectives on this. Um, I think the opening track purposely uses a lot of like jazz vocabulary, and and actually, it's the only track on the record that's not a free improvisation. I'm using the harmonic structure to a jazz standard called "All the Things You Are," and the computer's uh, doing a, a canon at the octave with it. But, you know, if you look at the, the, the track, the, the episode called Demonic March or... Uh, oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I, I don't think there's anything very jazzy about that. Uh, I think it's more in the realm of, of like, bar talk or... Or a movie soundtrack, for that matter. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I mean, there's definitely movie soundtracks that have borrowed a lot from the language of the of the Viennese school, you know, with, with the second Viennese school, with, with Schoenberg and Webern and Berg, the, the kind of very dissonant atonal sound. Uh, so I think it, it lives more in that realm than, than what I would associate with with a jazz style um, or also um, intervals too, uh, where I'm playing, I'm improvising this kind of folk song uh, and the computer is creating these, these strings of intervals on either side. that's that's you know yeah more in the realm of again somebody like Bartok uh, or or maybe Stravinsky in some ways than it is in the in the, in the jazz world and, and I mean I would say that that generally speaking what I love about this approach to me, to making music this this idea of imposing abstract constraints on um, on the music is that it's I would I would say it's style agnostic yeah I think you can you can make something that's like an inverted canon and it could be any style. And that, that's true of, you know, if you think about the rules that govern architecture, like the, the law of gravitation that you have to contend with, uh, it doesn't really say much about the style in which you got to build your building. It just says that, you know, essentially if you're building a bridge, it's going to have to have a certain type of structural design in order to counteract gravity and so it's the same kind of constraints uh that i'm dealing with here well i think that's a a great way to express it and i have to uh wrap things up by asking you a question that i often feel weird asking because it's like asking you to pick your favorite child but do you have a favorite track that we can go out on here um maybe i'd go out with uh with with episode three uh constant motion So the album is out on May 17th and it'll be available. It's on Sunnyside Records. Uh, it'll be everywhere. Yeah, you could go to, to uh, sunnysiderecords.bandcamp.com or uh, just go to Spotify or, or Apple Music. Any of the streaming services should have it. Uh, or, of course, you can buy the, the physical CD on, on Bandcamp or on Amazon or wherever fine music is sold. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for talking to us today, Dan, about your very innovative style of performance. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, we want to thank Dan Tepfer for joining us to talk about Natural Machines if you haven't already, uh, you have to go check out dantepfer.com where the YouTube videos that have the visualizations for these songs are housed and they're just great. It's a really big part of the experience that you can't get just by listening to the podcast. 
So we hope you got excited about this innovative form of musical performance and that you'll check out his YouTube channel as well as the new album Natural Machines, which comes out on May 17th. But that'll wrap things up for this episode of The Fourth Wall. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast, where we'll break through that fourth wall once again to talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. My name is Michael R., and you can follow me at Mike Sci-Fi. Find more content at denofgeek.com, and thanks for listening. Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall.